0: Obourne and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar.
1: Hello, it's Peter Oborn from a cold Wiltshire where the leaves are falling
0: fast from the trees. Hello, it's Richard Heller from South East London in similar conditions.
1: Now we can you introduce our outstanding guests, one of the most uh, interesting, gripping cricket writers of the modern era, Richard?
0: Well, I'm absolutely delighted to. Uh, it's a great thrill to welcome Mike Coward onto the podcast. Mike Coward is an extremely distinguished writer, broadcaster, about not only Australian cricket but other countries as well, for I think just about sixty, sixty years. Very much honoured for his work, as he should be. Um, Mike, welcome to the podcast.
2: Richard, it's a delight to be with you and with Peter. Greetings.
1: And where are you, Mike, physically? Because it's not you're not in Britain, are you, I don't think?
2: No, no. In the inner west of a very wet <laughs> Sydney, in a very wet spring. And uh, the spring carnival, of course, about to start, the racing carnival, which leads up to the Melbourne Cup and the great excitement mm-hmm. there and um yeah so that's all happening over the next few months so uh, but yes it's uh, we've had an extraordinary amount of rain so it, it's 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 a pleasure to be able to compete with you meteorologically given mm. uh, given your history over there with the rain Indeed. have you got any have you
0: got any tips for horses that like muddy going
2: <laughs> not at this point just keep an eye out on uh, warning warning in melbourne during the spring that's that's not a warning it's just a suggestion yeah. that you look at warning yeah
1: oh, good. that's a horse is it oh, there was a very very good horse uh trained in sussex which won the sussex stakes in uh, 1985 warning terrific uh ah,
2: mm. yes one of my one of my godson's owns uh warning down in victoria and they're uh, they hope to have a very productive spring. It is a form of Victorian derby winners, so it's got uh, plenty of class.
0: Warning, spelt W-A-R-N-E-I-N-G?
2: Or... No, no we, Shane Keith didn't get a mention there. About the only time he didn't get a mention, by, <laughs> but mind you. No, no, the conventional spelling, Richard. OK. Well,
1: just, well, Same name, actually. Uh, I've now ch- checked it. Guy Harwood trained. It was a top two-year-old in 1987 won the Richmond Stakes. It's obviously a different warning to the one which your godson owns. Yes, it
2: A contentious timeline. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: My, come on, we must, we must, we must progress. Mike, um, first, um, we've got a huge agenda for you, but the first item on it is to celebrate the um, republication uh, of um one of your the greatest of your i think it's 15 books um cricket beyond the bazaar uh it's been republished by our friends at all out 81 publishing and um like it's a really uh, it was written i think in 19 first published in 1990 very quickly hailed as a classic um don't be tell, tell readers why.
2: <laughs> well, that's, it's, a, it, it's a delight to know that people think of it so fondly, because it's certainly very important to me. Um, it was a tumultuous time in Australian cricket, and um, uh, there was a, a growing awareness of the changing cricket world. And this was the, the, the start, really, of Indo-Australian cricket of real significance, um, There'd been a strange, what prompted me to write it, Richard, was in fact, um, if it wasn't a cult, if it wasn't racist, it was culturally elitist, the attitudes to cricket on the subcontinent at that time in this country, particularly. There was a sense that we might have been, without being too contentious, aping the English attitude to that part of the world, but it was an unpleasant time. And the fact that um, uh, we had a remarkable leader in Alan Border then um, and Bob Simpson, um, who had come back to try and provide some direction to the Australian team at a tumultuous time. And so I just felt that the, the time was right. And because the tied test match of '86, only the second tied test of all time, as you know. Uh, and the World Cup, which Australia won against the odds, the first time the World Cup had been played outside England, um, there was no attention paid to it. And I was uh, unsettled, to say the least, probably angry, if, if, to, to be honest, uh, that there was such indifference shown to the accomplishment of Borders' team um, in both 86 and 87, and the fact that there was no recognition of what was happening in India at the time. And so that really prompted me to get into it. And the fact that now here we are 30 years on um, and the book has been republished and celebrated um, gives me great satisfaction. And I I think probably I was among the first to to see what was happening in India and what could happen. And of course, as we well know now, it has happened.
1: Richard and I found you a guiding light in our work on Pakistan cricket because you were, pretty well the only, only writer to actually take subcontinental cricket very seriously and judge it on its own terms. Uh, and we learnt a lot from the way you approached the subject.
2: It's yeah, nice of you to say, Peter. I mean, I, I think it was important. I went in without any judgments at all. Um, the first time I was in Pakistan was in 1982, with a very failed side. Uh, they lost all three test matches. They lost the first four of the five limited-over internationals and would have lost the fifth except it was rioted off. The Shamianas burnt down. And, I mean, it was an astonishing scene in Karachi. So the Shamianas were burning.
1: and Sorry, the Shamianas. Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: The, 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 te- the big tents, which you yeah. see always slung um, at matches in the subcontinent. Uh, they were burning, and the Australian... And Pakistan teams were back at the Oriental Hotel um, in the middle of uh, Karachi, in the pool, playing an international water polo match. So, I mean, it, it was extraordinary because the, the, the mateship and respect for each other was such um, that they they played this informal game of water polo while the stadium burned. And um, it was a difficult time in Pakistan and, and certainly a difficult time in um pakistan australia cricket relations which got worse in fact as you know in 1988 um but yeah no i've
1: always embraced that part of the world and enjoyed that part of the world that 1982 this is the was that the had the national stadium been built by them was it the national stadium which was, yeah
2: it was a national in the, stadium in karachi yeah, which yeah. Was
1: burning down yeah and that was of course early years of general zia who what was that was the who was doing <laughs> the burning
2: general oh well, to some degree, disenchant, uh, disenchanted students um, who were rioting because there was no water provided for them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had, I mean, often the students in Pakistan used the game to draw to the attention of the rest of the world some of the injustices the country was suffering, They, the students believe, and certainly the injustices they felt they were uh, undergoing, and certainly there was no water for them. So that half prompted that.
1: It was not the only time, because the England team had to sort of leave Karachi in a, in a great hurry in oh, 1969, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? I, yeah,
0: That was when our friend Aftab Ghoul, then a radical student leader, got selected for the um, um, Pakistan test team to sort of um, more or less duplicate them. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. As Basil D'Olivera said about uh, Aftab in Lahore, That he only had to raise his arm and the the crowd quietened down. You you sort of conducted, yes, yes,
2: yeah. Yeah, I've I've seen that happen. I saw that happen with Imran Khan in Madras, with uh, India playing uh, Pakistan in the World Cup in '96. Um, that was remarkable, too, when Imran walked out to pacify the mob. But um, yes, it was quite funny in 82. I walked out onto the ground when things were getting a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and I said to wonderful Zahir Abbas, um, is I uh, here? What's going to happen? And he said, "Mike, it is time you go now." And so <laughs> he was. So he, he knew. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and he was. Uh, he was spot on. And What a wonderful man and what a wonderful player was. Uh, was uh, here? But yes, I've always embraced that part of the world. Enjoyed it enormously, got good friends there. It's a sadness because of the history and the, and the violence, of course, that Australia until last year, or very recently, hadn't been there since 1988. So um, that was one of the good things this year that uh, the Australians decided to go back to Pakistan and were very successful under Pat, uh, Pat Cummins. And so the relationship between the two countries is, uh, is bonding again, which is wonderful.
1: Is yes, I have to say that it's, it's fair to say, isn't it, that Australia has ignored Pakistan uh, in the 60s uh, from memory. You only played them two two times, two test matches, and, and then you would sort of drop in on Pakistan on the way back from an Ashes tour. The yeah. 86 boys, having been bowled out a bit by, had a, met this chap called Laker in 1956. They then got back and they met Fazal. Mahmood in um, in Pakistan and got yeah. brought up by him
2: yeah that's true that's true that uh, there was a lot of indifference to that part of the world um, in, with Faisal he had the most beautiful eyes I think I've ever seen
1: blue eyes of course deep blue oh, eyes
2: a- absolutely Queen, the
0: Queen noticed them too didn't she the late Queen
2: yeah I think she made mention of it at some stage well, she'd been presented, I presume, with Faisal at some stage, but I can remember some uh, link between the Queen and the
1: fuzzle. Well, what happened was he was presented to the Pakistan team, it would have been in 1954, uh, and she walked along the line, uh, and then she paused and said, where did you get your blue eyes?
2: Yeah, yeah. and I had the joy of meeting him too, uh, which, was, uh, which was lovely, um, uh, many years on, of course, in the 80s. But, yeah, no, I've always embraced that part of the world and enjoyed it, Peter.
0: Um, your book opens with an absolutely enthralling account of that second Tide Test match, which, as you say, was um, wasn't particularly followed at the time so in Australia. I think you said it wasn't even shown on television um, in Australia, but it's um, still not um, registered as much on you know in the history of cricket, uh, in the consciousness of cricket, as the as the first great Tide Test match. But it had as much drama and individual achievement, didn't it?
2: Oh, very much so, very much so, and of course the extraordinary story that uh, Bob Bobby Simpson was involved in both, of mm. course, as a pl- player in 1960 and as the coach in uh, 1986.
1: I, I hadn't realised that. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, remarkable, absolutely remarkable, and what a um, uh, yeah, <laughs> interesting character Simpson, who is in very poor health these days, but oh, um, mm-hmm. a very, very, very political. Uh, figure, um, often misunderstood, one of the most political animals I've ever known in Australian cricket. But he was an outstanding player, an outstanding uh, slipper, of course, and a very fine coach. And he provided Border with a lot of support at the time when Border was unsure whether he had the capabilities to lead. Um, ultimately, of course, he became a very fine uh, captain but he certainly needed a, a lot of support and encouragement in those early days, and uh, Simpson provided that. But, yes, I mean, the sadness now, of course, is that Dean Jones has gone, and, um, you know, we've, we've had a horrendous run in recent times of losing uh, very early in their lives some very fine players with, you know, David Hooks and Dean Jones and Shane Warden and companies. It's been a subduing time for the Australian cricket community. But Jones's double hundred was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And um, he he was peerless. Uh, Gavaska got a 90 in the second innings that I remember to this day, down on one knee and square driving. Uh, Just the Mm. most astonishing batting. Um, Greg Matthews, this enigmatic offbeat uh, soul, um, 10 wickets in a match in those conditions. Um, I mean, it was remarkable. It was thrilling cricket. I tell you what, from a journalistic point of view, it was rather challenging with a Mm -hmm. five-hour time difference. You can imagine, you know, you prepare your lead for victory, you prepare your lead for defeat, but you don't actually prepare a lead for a tie. And Mm -hmm. um, and these are the days of open press boxes, um, teleprinters, um, and um, I can still remember the sweat pouring off... Off my brow onto the uh, the paper of um, what was that thermal paper so suddenly mm-hmm. the, the the pearls the pearls Richard, that might have been there suddenly vanished before your very eye
1: <laughs> oh no it's hot heart- I, I could imagine it's, it's so much heartbreaking <laughs> filing <laughs> filing from a foreign country can be it's very very uh, can be very painful you know. It's heartbreaking. What you just said—you lost, you lost your copy because you sweated onto it. Is that what Yeah, you were it
2: did. But it was oh. saved. and you summoned, you summoned the uh, copy boy from downstairs, and down it went to the teleprinter uh, <laughs> underneath the stand. And uh, you're talking about a five hour time difference too, so you know it,
1: it, yeah. uh, it
2: was something echoes like echoes of to 10 William
1: Boot in Scoop. This is
2: time. <laughs> <laughs> ten to ten at night, Eastern Standard yeah. Time. You know you're Whoa. you're ready for you're ready for intensive care.
0: I was surprised. i was surprised you didn't have a one of the copy boys mopping your brow. Mike,
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: like the seminary, the disseminate the. It's a fascinating book, as we've said, Cricket Beyond the Bazaar. There's a great deal to discuss about it. Um, it tells you a lot about um, Australia's shifting relationship with the um, with the Indian subcontinent in general. One chapter that really caught my eye was the the chapter on the very early tour in the 1930s, organised by Frank Tarrant. And I think you he he wrote a book separately about Tarrant and himself, didn't
2: you? Yes, yeah, just two years ago. It, that was... a I became fascinated by Tarrant um, when I was researching the the history for Cricket Beyond the Bazaar. And that was 1935, 36. And he really is entitled to a lot more credit for Indo-Australian cricket as it stands today. And I've been trying with very little success, I might say at this point, Richard, to lobby Cricket Australia to strike the Tarrant medal for the outstanding player on each side Mm -hmm. in a border Gavaska series, because he is responsible fundamentally. He worked both for the Australian Board of Cricket Control as it was then, and for the Maharaja of Patiala who controlled Indian cricket at the time. So he worked for both and he brokered that first tour. It was a tough tour for them, as you can imagine, but it began the relationship between the two countries. Um, And now it's celebrated. The Border gavaskis series is second only to the uh, Ashes series in terms of its significance internationally. Um, And I believe Tarrant really should get far greater recognition. So I had a lot of satisfaction. It's a small book on him. Of course, you would be familiar with Tarrant's record at Middlesex, which was phenomenal. And, of course, why there was so much indifference to Tarrant here was, um, although he got the first double hundred for Victoria against New South Wales, and he was a fine player, but he played nearly all his cricket in Middlesex and in India, uh, played very, very, very little in Australia. And um, so hence, uh, you know, he, I called it uh, this Frank Tarrant story, the forgotten pioneer. And, mm. uh, and he was very much the forgotten pioneer. So I'm going to chip away. And so hopefully one of these days, we'll see the Tarrant medal struck for the outstanding player, just to recognise a commitment that has been made by one man to both teams. And it, and, it, and it shows in both countries and it shows the camaraderie, the mateship, the respect uh, mm-hmm. between the two countries. We've had some pretty tough times, as you would know, in Indo-Australian cricket. It, it's got pretty fiery at times, particularly mm-hmm. thanks to Andrew Simons and uh, the late Andrew Simons, another one who has left us um, and Harbashan Singh. So we've had some tumultuous times. And it's good to recognise that someone made such a huge commitment uh, to the formation of the Bordegovska Trophy and the wonderful competition between the two countries.
1: It was lovely of Harbour Singh to pay that generous tribute, wasn't it, to Andrew Simmons after all they went through?
2: Yeah, it's it's very, very difficult. I mean, both of them were very difficult, combative, aggressive, abrasive men, Um, and... um, it was a very unfortunate, unpleasant issue, um, and of course, uh, Sachin Tindorka, the incomparable one, got tied up in it. It was just a very unpleasant time, and um, yes, it was. It was that the tribute was paid was significant, and it and it just goes to show, you know, that that above all, there can still be some real mutual respect for fellow
1: professional. Yeah, it was a moving moment. Hmm. I think I'm right in saying,
0: um, Mike, that. Australian teams were genuinely, genuinely a little more popular um, as visitors to the Indian subcontinent than, than English ones. Um, I, th- I think it's fair to say they weren't seen as part of, you know, the imperial legacy, were they? Uh, they were almost seen as sort of fellow victims of imperialism, weren't they? Did that, um, did that help them be well received by the Indian Pakistani publics later on?
2: Yes, no, I think that's true, Richard. I think that's very perceptive. Um, Australian cr- cricketers have always been very warmly embraced there. Um, yes, I think they, they didn't quite see the, 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 the impact, the imperial impact on Australia. At, at, but the Indians had a great sympathy, I think, for the Australians because they identified as sort of a similar subjugation, I suppose. Um, and, of course, the Bradman factor came into it. Um, while to their great distress, he never stepped foot well, that, that's not strictly right. He did step foot in the country once on Dum mm. Dum Airport in Calcutta on his mm. way to England in 53 or 56 to write um, for uh, was it the Express then that he was writing for. Anyway, it's the only time he stepped foot in India and they were always very distressed at that. Um, Lady Bradman, when she was going over when, he was, when Bradman was so sick, and um, uh, she stopped off and in, uh, in stayed at the Cricket Club of India in uh, Bombay oh, or wonderful Mumbai. Place. yeah oh, it's a wonderful place wonderful mm. place um, but there's a lot of people who are very distressed um, that Bradman showed that indifference uh, to, uh, to India yet he embraced them quite, uh, quite vigorously when they were here in 47, 48 um, when of course he scored his 100th, 100th uh, to, to greater claim. And, uh, of course, Dulip Sinji, of course, uh, became the uh, ambassador to Australia at about that period. So, you know, there was a relationship there, but there's a lot of the Indians who never forgave Bradman for not uh, stepping foot um, on, uh, on soil other than on that one trip to, uh, to England in the 50s. Mm.
0: They saw him in what became Sri Lanka a few times. He played a couple of matches there. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Not yes, not with did. any great success, but um, as you say, not never in on the Indian I think mainland.
2: There was a, yeah. a bit of an issue at one stage of the length of the deck. Um, mm. the, <laughs> the first time he was dismissed, and of course, being the great uh, pedant that he was, he would have known it straight away.
1: Yes. Did, yeah. did Frank Tarrant ever talk to Bradman about India?
2: No, not to my knowledge that I could track down. I mean, it, it, the Tarrant exercise, as you would know, Peter, when you're dealing with someone who died in the early 50s, there was not a lot of material left. I got to his family. They knew very little of him as well, um, which was astonishing, you know, given what a celebrated career has had. But he fundamentally had it outside of Australia, and that was uh, the difference. So, no, as as
1: far as I could ascertain, there was no contact. Because I wondered whether he might have tried to bring the great uh, the great man over at one point to India. It would have been part of his sort of, fitted his project, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, patiala would have loved that. Um, and and <laughs> probably, but I don't know whether he ever made the directive. So we're talking 35-6, of course. So he was at the peak of his powers. So yeah, that's an interesting point, but I could never ascertain that.
0: Mike, I think you wrote part of um, Cricket Beyond the Bazaar living in India itself, is that right? Yes, I did. You lived near, near Madras, didn't you?
2: Yeah. Yes, I did at Palavakam Nilangri, little village just south of Chennai as it is now. My great mate Ramaswamy Mohan, the uh, senior cricket writer for the, uh, the Hindu as he was in those days, um, so he organised me this lovely little house on the, on the beach. And um, so, yes, and funnily, I was living in Sri Lanka Two years ago or three years ago now and did most of the tarrant book there so um i, I don't know whether perhaps it helps i don't know but um certainly and en- certainly very much enjoyed you know i just like to embrace that part of the world and i think it probably does help with your writing um when you're a sort of in situ as it were
0: again one gets the sense whether it's where you were living or just your um, your sheer technique and intuition as a writer uh, insight as a writer but um Once again, cricket beyond the bazaar really tells you a lot about India and Pakistan. You've got, it still gets you very deeply into both countries at a moment, as you say, of sort of transition for both of them.
2: Yeah, very much so. And it's certainly reflective of a time. um, And also from a journalistic point of view, it's reflective on the time, the difficulties of filing, which uh, you, you both would identify with. Um, having to uh, ingratiate yourself to heavies in in the communities, to, to, to get to a factory to send you material because the <laughs> the little camp offices, as they call it, at the grounds weren't uh, weren't function, functioning with the teleprinter. So you know, it, you had to be resource. You had to be as resourceful as a member of the fourth estate, as the players oh. had to be resourceful to prosper. Uh, indeed, interesting.
0: Mike, I want to turn on to. Um, now, to Australian cricket in general. Huge agenda in front of us there, but um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're going to have to invite you back for a second or even third innings to get through it all. But I'd like to take you to one quote from another of your books, uh, a book you wrote with McFaig, Well, just on the baggy green, the history of Australia's famous cricket cap. And you say, sitting there at the opening, cricket occupies a unique place in Australian sport. It was the first national game, and continues and remains so after more than 100 years. It is a game whose national side significantly predates the Australian teams of all other major sports and even the Federation of Australian Colonies. And that really struck me. Um, Australian cricket gets going as Australian cricket even before there's a formerly known Australia.
2: Before there's an Australia. Yeah, it's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, the the Australian Cricket Council was formed in 1892, and what is not regularly known, uh, Richard, is that the Australian players, to this day, that the cricket coat of arms is different to the national coat of arms on their caps. That's not the national coat of arms you see. It's the cricket coat of arms. And that uh, has been in place since uh, 1899. Um, and you on the badge, if you look closely, you'll see the symbols of a shailing, a sailing ship, the slaughtered sheep, a sheaf of wheat and a miner's pick and shovel. So these were the powerful symbols at the turn of the century in 1899, and um, and so the kangaroo and of course the emu adorn the, the, the cap, the crest. But those symbols in the uh, in the shield um, mm. are, are, are different, um, and so there's a uniqueness and a great pride in um, the Australian cricket coat of arms, and it's not well known that that is a fact but yes it did it predated uh, it predated the commonwealth predated uh, a federation in 1901
1: mm. isn't that fascinating that the cricket team predates the nation
2: yeah yeah and it, and their passion is there i think it's problematic today whether the, it accurately reflects the changing face of the country and the way the country has evolved, particularly through immigration since the Second World War. But it is a remarkable fact. And um, the players, you will have seen how the respect that the Australian players show to the baggy green is more than just a cap. Um, Some of their opponents at different times have mocked it Um, But in more recent years, it's been very interesting because Steve Waugh, of course, began the numbering of the caps and things like this, and just about... And they take with such pride the number of their cap and the number of their shirts now, when what number they represented their country. And most countries have followed suit. So, you know, the Australians have have been at the forefront of that. And it's a wonderful recognition of the the history and tradition of the game. And it's celebrated now by every Test match playing country. Um, and I I don't know that I imagine that even the countries that, for instance, the ones who are coming here for the, the T20 World Cup, which starts over the next 10 days, um, you know, will take great pride in the numbering that they represent their country at a different form of the game. So, yeah, I mean, it's significant that the, the Australian crest um, it, and the Australian team predates the country.
1: And it's therefore part of the Australian national soul, isn't it?
2: Very much so, very much so. Even in the changing face and with the immigration uh, as it is and has been since the Second World War, that's very, that's very very true, Peter. And to a large degree, because of what has occurred in the country, and I, in the country I mean away from urban areas, Australian cricket has been built to a large degree on the achievement of men uh, and now women from the from the Australian countryside, uh, the vast tracts of land beyond the cities and towns, and this is where, uh, the, as you point out, the soul. And you're quite right; it is part of the soul of the country. But um, you can read country quite literally too, beyond the urban areas. That's where a lot of the strength lies, and always has.
0: And that takes me on to another subject that was always fascinating me in any country: railways railways are really important there's a really good book i think to be written about railways and sport um and what they what they do to um how they facilitate competition in sport national-wide competition that that was true in england Mm. the railway age sees basically cricket organized and codified and Mm. and into a into a championship for the first time the county early county championship is basically the all the counties that are linked by the rail network I think the railways are even more important in in Australia, given the vast distances concerned. Even to, you know, to, a state team must depend on must have depended on railway transport initially, just to to come into existence, to get players together.
2: Oh, indeed, indeed. I mean, you can imagine what the the trip to Perth was like in those days by train from uh, the eastern states. It was a, t- a three three day, even a four day. Uh, exercise Uh, yes you're quite right Um, and it's still significant I mean I can remember well in talking earlier about um, Terence tour in 35-36 that was all done by train uh, through undivided in India in those days of course well before partition and uh, the the ground covered the distance covered in, in that period was extraordinary and, of course, Patiala had uh, organized them to have their uh, their attendance, so they traveled comfortably, mind you. Um, in fact, when they got to Patiala, he picked them up in his fleet of Rolls-Royce, whatever yeah. the, the, the collective noun is for... What is it? Uh, what would it be with Rolls-Royces? What is it? What's the collective noun? For... I wouldn't know.
0: I should get an ostentation of Rolls-Royces.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, and picked them up in the fleet of uh, Rolls-Royce to take them to, um, to the palace. Um, yeah, no, that's very true. And, and of course, the distances from... Um, and, and one of the biggest problems, Richard, of course, for a long time in Australia was the different gauges um, and it's, we've still got issues in the country today with, uh, with, with, uh, with rail travel, difficult to reach Canberra, for instance, from Sydney. Um, you can do it, but not quickly. We've got none of the fast trains that, um, uh, that you know, we should have that Europe and Japan and, and most of Asia have got. Uh, there's a big issue there. But, uh, yes, you're quite right. In those days, it was a, a hell of a journey.
0: There's some epic sort of railway journeys in Australia's cricket history, aren't they? I mean, Bradman had a sort of royal progress, didn't he, when he by train when he returned from, uh, from 1930, Yes, I think.
2: 1930 he did, yeah. And, of course, the, the saddest, saddest journey of all was um, in 1932-33, at the end of the first of the uh, body line tests, when uh, a body uh, was brought from Brisbane, to uh, to sydney um when we lost one of our great young players um if, you know that is one of the i think you, did you read david frith's book on mm. um jackson yes. uh, and archie jackson, archie yeah. jackson. yeah yeah mm. nothing but that was one of the saddest journeys that um the england team um and the australians they accompanied the body from brisbane to sydney before the Jacksons' uh, burial at the Field of Mars Cemetery here in the inner west of Sydney. A very sad journey and uh, a beautiful, beautiful book, uh, David Frith's uh, Archie Jackson story.
1: Tell, but t- tell us a bit more about who he was and uh, and the story of how he died, uh, please, Mike.
2: Archie Jackson, yeah, well, uh, you know, I mean, a bit like Victor Trumper, who also left us young in his 30s, but um, the... Uh, the first signs of that things were amiss with Jackson uh, because of his, uh, the consumption, because of his lungs was in England in 1930. Um, he was a very young man and, um, and the the fitness issues and the health issues were apparent then. Um, but when he came back from England in 1930, it was pretty a steady regression as I recall it. And um, by 1932, um, when he he was failing, failing quickly, and um, and hence that very sad journey after the first of the bodyline tests. So yeah, it's one of the it's it's a, it's one of the saddest uh, of stories. But um, the the issues that confronted um, a lot of people at that age, and mm-hmm. he wasn't strong enough. He just wasn't strong enough to withstand it
0: sad, he—he he, uh, he was a great idol in his time, wasn't he? I mean, he was a beautiful oh. batsman. I mean, everybody says he was an—he was a, a beautiful batsman to watch. Even more beautiful than—I mean, more beautiful than Bradman. Um,
1: Which is not saying very much, to be fair. I mean, Bradman well, was not a, a beautiful. Uh, but
0: scored almost, I think, scored as many runs—that his mark in 1930—as much as Bradman from the from the run-scoring point of view. I,
2: yeah that's true i think if there was a comparison with uh, trumper in terms of elegance and charm it would fall with trumper um, oh. you know it's just so so graceful and so mm. poised um, but uh, yeah i mean bradman was was more of the pragmatic hard hitter particularly through uh, through midwicket when he was a very very hard hitter through there um, he was a he was an accumulator whether, where with jackson i mean i would have loved to have seen jackson you know it's interesting isn't it? as you get older you think of the people that you would love to have seen in full flight we've been so lucky to see so many in our lifetime but you know jackson i think you know i would love to have i've, I've met frank Worrell. I'm, I'm, I'm above all i think of, of leaders and i would have loved to have seen uh, archie jackson in full flow but um but we should be grateful. Look who we've been able to see over the last 30 years. It's been remarkable. Mike, yeah. I'd like to
0: take on now some issues in Australian cricket by, which are very much alive in, in English cricket now and sort of draw the comparison with them. It's often said that Australian cricket is, um, you know, is more diverse and less exclusive than, than English cricket, less confined to affluent you know, to the affluent class, private, school private educated, schools, um, educated. Yeah. yeah, but um, I just wonder how much that's really true. Is it? Um, I've also seen present day concerns that um, you know Australian cricket is retreating to, um, uh, as it is in England, to um, to those affluent, you know, independently educated people. What What would be your assessment?
2: Well, historically, it has has been seen as as a sp- I think the sport of the people, I, but I th- see this, the, the number of private schools, um, gr- graduates. There's not a lot in test cricket. It's very interesting. I mean, you've got your Paul Sheehan's, you've got your sh- Chapels. You've had your, you've had a, a reasonable quota from the private school system, but most of them have come from the public school system. Um, I think the more worrying aspect, Richard, is to what degree is it reflecting modern Australia and our immigration, particularly as our Asian population um, is not really represented at all, nor of course it's uh, much of the indigenous. There's been a great attempt by Cricket Australia to address the issues of the Aboriginal population and Torres Strait population. Um, And of course, are looking back you know you, we all know about Eddie Gilbert and Jack Marsh um, and
1: perhaps you could talk talk about Eddie Gilbert and Jack Marsh because some of the people many of the people that actually listening to this won't know and they're, they're very telling stories and there are important parallels with the history of cricket in South Africa at the same sort of time.
2: Yeah yeah that's true. Um, or both were, were strong Aboriginal people. Quite black in appearance, both fast bowlers, and both said, interestingly, to have contentious actions, which mm. is interesting. Um, and one would have to uh, wonder quite where that came from. Um, they they met they met with unfair challenges in the community. Jack Marsh was um, a very fine athlete before he turned to uh, to cricket, um, and it was quite celebrated. Um, he was a dapper dresser, he was most articulate, and um, just quite why. I, I would need to go back and reread um, <coughs> the history of it, but th- there's no doubt that both he and Gilbert suffered persecution because of their Aboriginality. You know, that's pretty well undeniable. Um, it's been comforting in more recent years to see. I mean, we've got to keep in mind that the, uh, the White Australia policy, White Australia, the policy, didn't lose its the last vestiges until 1973. Um, the referendum, which gave the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders the right to be included in the census and to vote, didn't occur until
1: 1967. As late as that. It's extraordinary. And so until then, they were not. Really, they were not citizens. They're not accounted. No, yeah, it's quite it's extraordinary. It's not counted at all. Yeah,
2: mm. yeah.
1: But
0: um, just thinking of <laughs> thinking of Jack Marsh as a dapper dresser that a fear would have probably been held against him, wouldn't it? Um, around the same time, Jack Johnson, the great black boxer, got into terrible trouble because he was, in part, because he was a, a dapper dresser and um, yeah. adopted the, the the lifestyle of a you know of a, of a rich white man. Yeah, including marrying a white woman, which was which, worse, which
2: Marsh hoped, of course, would uh, would enable him to be seen in a different light, and that uh, it would give him the opportunity uh, to express his uh, you know his, his, his great cricket talent. Um, so th- from you know it has been pleasing in recent years you know to see that uh, Jason Gillespie flourished so uh, and now Scott Boland has come through. Um, in quite dramatic circumstances, Scott Boland, in a very exciting way. And that's, that's lifting the profile. Um, it is, to a large degree, the, the, the Aboriginal community in Torres Strait Island community, I believe, has seen cricket as an exclusive pastime and the game of the oppressor, to a large degree. It's the game of the oppressor. Why mm-hmm. would parents want their children to play the game of the oppressor? And so there's a huge education program still underway to try and break down a lot of those uh, attitudes um, and um, it's encouraging to see that you know you don't see many certainly no asian names richard cheek we did play for new south wales he, he came from very old chinese stock um been around for a long time but other than michael valetta um, lenny pascoe who of course was lenny Ditanovic. There's I been didn't very, know that. Yeah. Lenny, yeah, Lenny Dutalovich, Yeah, because we had massive, after World War II, um, not only English immigration and the 10, 10 pound POM, I mean, there was massive emigration from Yugoslavia, from Turkey, from Greece and from Italy. I mean, there are huge Italian and Greek communities now all over Australia and Greek, I think Melbourne, next to Athens and Thessalonica, was the biggest Greek, one of the biggest Greek populations in the world. Um, And um, so so there hasn't been too much representation in the cricket world um, from the Europeans, as I said, other than Valletta um, and Tatanovich, that springs to mind. There may be others that I just haven't thought of off the top. But that's... I think people do ask nowadays, and certainly, particularly after the Vietnam War, we've had massive um, um, Vietnamese immigration, and it's been very successful. Um, And now, of course, the Indian diaspora is just, taking over. In fact, the Indian the Indian immigration figures now are greater than, than, than the Chinese. Historically, the Chinese have always been the, the greatest of the immigrants, but now um, the Indians. And it's going to be very interesting. We've got a couple of very talented young Indian boys playing for New South Wales, uh, Jason Sanger um, and his brother. Um, and there's a few that are coming through. And I think that, that I, over the next 10 or 15 years, we will see uh, are changed to the complexion in every sense of Australian cricket.
1: Is it is it still the case that Usman Khawaja is your only Asian cricketer? Yeah, he is. And That's what a very quite astonishing, good isn't it? Well, a fantastic player. Yeah, yeah but a very
2: so, good player. Yeah, at that level. Um, I mean, there are also the the different communities. There is a. Um, I can remember Ian Chappell and I did a presentation night years ago. Um, at the Asheville Town Hall for the, for the presentation night to the, to the, what did they call it? It was a multi-country league or something. There were, there were teams from everywhere, from, from Turkey, from Italy, from Greece, from, from Lebanon, you name it. So, you know, within their communities, um, there are, the game is very, very popular. Where Cricket Australia has to make really, got to make greater headway, is for some of those players from that age group and the young ones out of school to come through uh, into the um, into the system. Um, so perhaps there's been a weakness there. I'm not. I'm not sure. They've certainly made great strides in terms of embracing the need of the Aboriginal community. Um, but yeah, I mean, and they are very conscious of the need to have to better reflect modern Australia.
1: Going back to the Aboriginal. Community. It's fascinating. The fascinating thing that the first uh, Australian team to come to uh, England was, in fact, an Aboriginal team, wasn't it? It was 1868. Tell us a little bit about that because it's so interesting that we should. Were they. Why, how did that come about, uh, Mike?
2: <laughs> Under an English manager. Um, mm-hmm. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, what's his name? I'll think of it off the top in a minute. Um, in 1868, but it wasn't not only because of their cricket. I mean, I think one of the difficulty thing difficulties, Peter, was that in fact it was to entertain, because mm. they were to throw the boomerang, they were to throw spears. Um, they, it was to be uh, a jamboree as much as it right. was a cricket exercise, yes. and so there was the novelty of the
1: of the Aboriginal person. So they were sort of on display almost, as in yes, the zoo, exactly. As exactly, as much as yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 and um, so that it, it, it culturally, uh, the, there's some awkwardness. I mean, they like to. We certainly celebrate the fact that uh, that that was uh, that that was the introduction. Uh, to England in 1868 by the team, uh, Dickie Dick and all, all the rest of them, and Johnny Muller, Johnny Muller, um, who recently was um, inducted into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame. He was the, the the number one batsman in that side, and Ian Chappell was one of his greatest champions. Um, mm. Always has, has been. Ian Ian is socially progressive. Uh, it surprises you know- a lot of people.
1: Do you know that is it, is it the case that Ian Chapel is just a really good bloke? I get this impression that he's a terrific man, actually, as well as a terrific great cricketer and captain.
2: He's a hard, tough, uncompromising character, but the, the qualities, he is honest and loyal. And so, whatever you say about him and his very harsh tongue, and it is a harsh tongue, um, he can certainly uh, swear with the best of them, as you well know. But his, his loyalty, uh, and his um, and his honesty are the most outstanding qualities and made him a great leader. And there's no better story than Terry Jenner, the leg spinner you'll recall,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, who ran into uh, troubles with the authority and ended up doing time for a uh, for fraud. Um, he got out of, uh, Chapel wrote to him in jail the entire time. And when he got out of jail, he met the chapel at Adelaide Oval, beautiful Adelaide Oval. And, um, and ch- he said to chapel, um, I'll just go around the back and um, I'll see you around the back. And he said, no, you won't. He said, you'll walk out the front and I'll walk with you. And that was so characteristic oh, of chapel. Oh,
1: that is, that's leadership. That's kindness. That's decency. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. exactly.
2: And he walked with him in front of a big crowd at a test match. From the southern end, right round to where the rooms are on the western side, which is quite a walk. So mm. it was, um, you know, it said so much about the man.
0: Terry Jenner, of course, went on to become Shane Warne's mentor, didn't he? Yes,
2: he did. He, he did, did very much him. so. And so
0: a great contribution to Australian yes, cricket, quite apart from his <laughs> yeah. playing career. He had a very interesting. I saw Terry Jenner in action as a coach several times in England. He coached here, coached young leg spinners over here yeah. quite a lot, and um, he had a very interesting coaching technique. He basically recited great chunks of poetry, um, you know, and would suddenly slip in a coaching tip. The world's great age begins anew, the golden years return, you know, pitch the ball further up, you know, that kind of thing.
2: He was a very, very interesting, uh, very interesting character. And it was interesting because I think that philosophy and the importance of coaching um, was something that Warren took on himself. And Warren was unbelievably generous with his time to young leg spinners all around the world. I can mm-hmm. remember him you know in Zimbabwe, South Africa, uh, everywhere, uh, even when he was pounded into a submission in uh, India, which he often was by a and company, uh, he always had time to counsel and cajole the uh, the young leg spinners. He was wonderful like that
1: mm. yeah we're gonna, we, we, we still miss him, don't we we do yeah. um
0: yeah. we must i think we we've hardly talked. We've haven't got much time left but we must talk about your own uh, media career in uh, which has been uh, one of great distinction for sixty years. And I think you've you've covered um you've covered cricket for virtually every medium there is over the last sixty years. You began in, in hot metal newspapers, and I think you have happy memories of that, of that apprenticeship. Uh but you've also covered um cricket um through radio, through a Television, uh, in online in online media, and just wondered your thoughts on how important have media been in establishing the relationship between um, you know Australian cricket and um, and its fans and spectators in bringing cricket to the people. Thinking particularly of radio commentary, which I think has a very very strong influence. And there's a lovely chapter in one of in, I think in your first book first. Book uh, you wrote in collaboration with Max Walker. You describe a sort of ten-year-old Max Walker building himself a radio set to um, <laughs> so that he could, you know, so he could listen all night in bed to the Australian yeah, cricket yeah. team in England.
2: Yeah, there's a there's another fine raconteur that we've lost. It's very sad. Um, yeah, no, it plays an enormous role, and it has in the modern game. And not only in this country, but because of the whatever you thought of uh, the World Series cricket ruction, and it was certainly that, um, to live through the... I think that's the thing that I look back on, uh, to have lived through the the revolutions, Richard, and survived. Not only the newspaper revolution, but the cricket revolution. And there's been no doubt. And, of course, we're now seeing... I've always said that other than World Series cricket revolution... The other big revolution was 2007 in South Africa with the, uh, the, the T20, when India didn't want to play, left the, most of its great players out, and then won the tournament. And of course, the world's been completely seduced uh, by T20, just as it was in 1983, when India defied all the odds to win the World Cup in, in London under Kapil Dev, um, that India was seduced. And so the, the world has changed. Um, and Australia, um, I think, uh, media um, moguls were the ones who recognized it spectacularly well in the early days. And whatever you thought of Kerry Packer, um, there's no doubt that he fast tracked uh, the dramatic changes in the presentation of the game. World Series cricket not only changed the way the game is played, but has changed the way the game looks, it's changed the way the game is commentated on changed the way the game is written about it has changed every aspect of it and um so some are comfortable with it some resist it but um it's brought a lot of people and particularly women to uh, to the game um and of course women's cricket now is something to behold and we're very lucky in this country to have one of the great uh, women cricket sides in the world, consistently outstanding. Um, and they are setting standards, which the boys are very conscious of. And also they realise that they need to match the standard of the, of the women. That's a very interesting stage in the evolution of the game in this country.
0: Hmm. Uh, just one factual question about the media landscape at the moment, as um. Australians able to watch international matches on free-to-air television.
2: <laughs> yes, that's a huge issue in England. That was yeah. a, that was a, a disastrous uh, uh, decision. Yes, they still can. Mm. We're very well, fortunate.
0: Yeah, well, a lot of things, a lot of things to reflect on then, considering the fate of English cricket since its withdrawal from free-to-air TV and the present state of Australian cricket now. Um, well, you met a lot of, um, I think, very celebrated fellow journalists and commentators um, uh, in in your career, understandably. Um, I think you've mentioned Ray Robinson, great writer. Uh, you've also mentioned Alan McGilvray. Were they
2: great influences on you? Oh, yes. I mean, I've been very, very fortunate. Um, Richie Benno. Um, I always remember, you know, the contributions that, that can make. It was... Lords in 1972, and you'll recall Massey took 16 for 137. Mm-hmm. Um, it was my first tour. It was at Lords. Massey was running amok. It was my first tour. Uh, I was working for AAP, the agency, Australian Associated Press. And Richie knew of me but didn't really know me. Uh, I'd been working in England in Fleet Street since 1970, so I hadn't had any recent contact with Bennett. And he suddenly emerged from his working position and came down and said, is everything okay? You're managing all right. Because he knew as a professional newspaper man, I was the agency man having to deal with this astonishing situation of Massey taking wicket after wicket. Uh, We had the deadline to to meet. And so there was a senior man taking an interest in a junior. I was 25 at that point. he went out of his way to make me feel comfortable and to offer assistance. I've been very lucky and have good mateships um, in England. Um, Matthew Engel and Shield um, are good mates. Um, Graham Morris, the great photographer, uh, Patrick Eager. I've been very fortunate over a long time and to work with the ABC here with uh, Jim Maxwell, who succeeded um, Alan McGilvray. Um, And to to, to know some of the the great commentators in uh, India and Pakistan as well, Um, you know I I, I've had a wonderful working life, a wonderful working life for which I'm extremely grateful, and um and it's the game, it's the game and its people. And in 1972, in the last test, I sat alongside John Arlott, who I just adored adored his work and reading, and he leant across at one stage and he said, Mike, did I ever tell you about? And off he would go <laughs> with, with, a, with a yarn. And, um, I mean, the privileges of that. Um, and so, no, I look back on a, a working life with great gratitude and Arlet always said when he was the, uh, was he chairman or president of the Professional Players Association, he said that that was the great joy of his life, was the people of the game. And I think that's what um, has given me greater satisfaction and happiness is um, the people of the game. And I've been very lucky to see the great players of the last 50, 60 years and to get to know a lot of them. Um, and that's, that's been a joy.
1: Mike, uh, just thank you very much. I enjoyed every minute of that conversation and and it's goodbye for me peter o'born in a sunny but very cold wiltshire uh,
0: it's goodbye for me richard heller mike I echo my thanks absolutely riveting conversation uh, so much more uh, we wanted to cover that uh, we're definitely going to ask you back for a second innings when it's um, when it's mutually convenient um when it's deeper into your summer and deeper into our
2: winter <laughs> it's <laughs> been a great pleasure it's been a great pleasure being with you both thank you